Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Over the past fortnight, uh, it's been the World Chess Championship. Uh, yeah? People are surprised that I like chess. Um, with Ian, I'm going to try and pronounce this, Nepomniachtchi, taking on the current champion, Magnus Carlsen. And I like chess a little bit. I, I kind of play every now and again. I'm terrible at chess. Awful. I can't think more than maybe two moves ahead, um, which means... You know, I can only beat the computer when it's given me a chance. Um, whereas a chess grandmaster is able to memorise entire games and can think of multiple scenarios at once. And then you have, even above them now, chess supercomputers that can memorise entire history of chess and almost every move possible and would beat a grandmaster um, with accuracy and precision. For someone um, like me, watching a game of chess develop whether it's a game I'm playing or something I'm following, it's impossible for me to know what's going to happen. Just, I have no idea. Um, and, for example, there was a situation in game nine, which will come up on screen now. Now, um, <laughs> Carlson is black, Nepom Niachi is white, and, and he, he advances his white pawn to C5, where it is there, it's kind of highlighted, and there's two question marks around it, um, which, which tells you that apparently that was an enormous blunder. Enormous blunder. Now, I look at that and I think, I, I wouldn't have a clue what's happening here. But the grandmasters and the supercomputers and Magnus Carlsen all knew that that move took white from a winning position to a certain defeat. Wow. <laughs> I can't begin to understand why, but people who can see the bigger picture can. I've been thinking about this move um, for the past few days, because I think it's a good analogy for humanity and God. We all look at our lives, we look at the universe, we look at the things that are happening, um, and our own circumstances in a way that I might look at a chessboard, completely unable to understand what might be going on, completely understand to see the permutations and the next things that might be happening, and unable to figure out where this all fits in a big story. But God is the grandmaster or even the supercomputer who in his sovereignty is able to see every move, when they'll happen, what the consequences will be, and how it's all going to finish. He's the one who can see that that is game over. And we're going to see in our passage in a moment that God is in total control of all events. But sometimes the way that plays out is totally unexpected. And this morning that should give us hope. That should give us hope as we look at our own lives, as we look at situations around us. God is in control, even if we don't understand how and why things happen the way they do. Right now, more than ever, we need to know and believe in a sovereign God who is sovereign over every circumstance and every power and government. As we have read this morning, the government will be on his shoulders, all governments on his shoulders. He is sovereign and in control. So this morning, our passage is Luke 2. Verses 1 to 20, it's one of the accounts of Jesus' birth that's recorded in the Gospels. It's going to come up on screen, I'm going to read it out as well. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census 
should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judah, to Bethlehem to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favour rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. We're going to see three things this morning from this passage, three ways in which God acts in the Christmas story, three unexpected ways that God acts. At times we don't expect, in ways we don't expect, and to accomplish what we don't expect. So let's look at the times that we, or at times we don't expect, God acting at times we don't expect. The last recorded prophecy about Jesus in the Old Testament uh, was in the book of Malachi. Now, Malachi was probably a, a contemporary of Nehemiah, which means it was written about 430 BC. Um, and that's about the time that the Israelites have returned to Jerusalem uh, to rebuild the city and the temple. So that means it's a period of 400 years where there's nothing. There's no more, no more scripture written. There's no more prophecies with a big P that end up in the Bible, let alone words about the Messiah. And during this seemingly silent period, there is enormous change and upheaval for Israel. When Malachi was written, as I said, they just returned home, but they were still a territory in the Persian Empire. But the Persian Empire eventually falls, as all empires do, and Israel falls then to the Greeks under Alexander the Great. But the Greek Hellenistic Empire also falls, as all empires do. And by the time we reach the Gospels, the Israelites and Jerusalem is controlled by the Roman Empire. The people had waited and endured for hundreds of years of occupation and oppression for the Messiah to come. And I'm sure many people who lived in this time would have been living with a sense of expectancy and faith that the Messiah was due imminently in their lifetime, in their day. Others will have looked at the time that had passed, maybe it's been 300 years, and they think, 
it may be some time away. Or maybe it won't ever come at all. Maybe they've, they've lost their faith for God to move in this way. I suspect that the people who lived in the time that Jesus was born, many of them may well have been, would have been expectantly believing that the Messiah would come, but I doubt any of, many of them would have been thinking they would see it in their lifetime. And I'm certain that Mary and Joseph didn't expect to be a part of the story. And then there's the shepherds. They're just going about their lives, doing shepherd things, whatever shepherds do. Um, And then an angel appears to them and says, the Messiah that you've been waiting for is born today. Imagine how they felt. Imagine what that would have been like, that moment where everything just changed for them. See, the incarnation, the incarnation is Jesus coming down and taking on flesh. Shows us that God does things at unexpected times. We often hope, don't we, that, and sometimes even expect that God will move in a situation now. And and of course, it's good to do this. It's good to have faith. It's good to ask God to move now. It's good to declare with faith that God can and will and is able to move now. He can move any situation whenever he wants, but that's the key. It's whenever he wants. And his timing isn't always our timing, but his timing is always perfect timing. Now, that that can be difficult to, to grasp and understand when you're in the midst of suffering, can't it? Everything in your heart tells you when you're, when you're suffering, when you're struggling, when you, when you need breakthrough, that that move of God needs to happen now. And there were countless Israelites who would have lived in this 400-year period of oppression and uncertainty who would have been thinking that they need the Messiah now. And we don't know why God chose this time. We, 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 our brains could never probably fully understand the workings and mind of God. We can't possibly see all of history. We can't possibly see um, the, the correct perspective on how things all unfold. But there's one thing about the timing that Jesus came that definitely wasn't coincidental, I don't think. Um, and that is that Bethlehem being in the Roman Empire at this particular moment. And that's important because over the next few hundred years, over the next about 350 years, the gospel, the message of Jesus, will spread throughout this entire empire. And it's an empire that's huge. It ranges from North Africa to the Middle East, out to the Caspian Sea, uh, up into southern Russia and Ukraine, but all of Western Europe, even into the UK. And the people could trade and travel freely across the empire with no visas. Isn't that a great idea? (laughs) And it just so happened that the height of the Roman Empire was around about 117 AD. And this is the point where the early church is spreading allowing the apostles to, sp- to spread the gospel freely across this enormous territory. It's almost as if God had planned it this way. It's almost as if God does have the empires in his hands. And sometimes we don't understand the ways and times that God moves in our lives until after the event. I often reflect on, on how we ended up moving to Stockport and being in, in this church, actually. We were living in Fallowfield. We just had baby uh, Thomas. Uh, he was a, a few months old. We'd been doing, uh, working with students in our old church, um, and we had just started a service, an evening service, in a Starbucks in Fallowfield, which when you're thinking about reaching students, a Starbucks in the middle of Fallowfield is 
the perfect place, right? And we'd received enormous favour, like the guy who ran the shop let us have the place for free. It was incredible. And we thought, this is where God wants us to be. This is the place where we're going to serve and build. We had a big vision and a big heart for student ministry in Manchester. We'd been doing it for a few years, and then this opportunity presented itself. But then God moved, and it was in a time and a way that we never expected. We were looking for a place to live um, just as this uh, service started, um, and we couldn't find anywhere um, that was suitable for a, a newborn baby um, in that area. And I got a text from John, John Langley, sitting at the back, uh, doing, doing uh, sound today, saying, I've just found this house in Right Move, you should take a look at it. And it was in an SK postcode, and I had no intention of going to Stockport because I needed to be in Fallowfield. I needed to be near Starbucks. Um, it was only a few hundred metres inside the border, but it was enough in, in my mind to think, no, this isn't where I want to be. It was also way above budget for what we could afford for rent at the time. But we took a look, and we looked at the house, and we thought, we're going to live here. This is the place. Like, it, it was perfect for us, even though it was a stretch for us financially and well away from where we wanted to be. Um, you know, in a year after moving there, the evening service had stopped. It hadn't worked out. And CCM moved to Kingsburn Hall, which is a two-minute walk away from our house. And I'm here today. Yay! Aren't you all lucky? <laughs> but it goes beyond just changing church. And, and you know, we, we, we loved our old church. We still do. It's, it's a great church, as, as this is too. But there was another thing that we never saw come in. About a year after moving to Stockport, our boy, Thomas, was diagnosed with autism, quite, quite severe autism. Moving into Stockport, moving 100 metres over the border, made all the difference to access to care and support from the local authority that we never would have got in Manchester. God knew what he was doing when he moved us at that time. And we're so grateful and, and blessed to have received that that we never would have had in Manchester. And that's a postcode lottery of how these things work. And God blessed us with that at a time and in a way that we didn't expect. Because God also moves in ways that we don't expect. Not only is the timing of the incarnation expected, but so is, so is the event itself. It's so ingrained in our minds now, the Christmas story, that it's just normal, but it wasn't what people would have expected. It's worth thinking about, just for a moment, how this scene in Luke 2 came to be. You um, see, in order to fulfil the prophecy that's in Micah 2, um, Micah 5 verse 2, I should say, the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. So, rather than choosing a couple in Bethlehem, God chooses a couple from Nazareth, 70 miles away, roughly, as, as a crow flies, which is a fair distance in those days. So he has to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, so they can give birth in Bethlehem, which is easy enough. I mean, Joseph's family is from Bethlehem, so maybe you could need to visit family. Joseph's a carpenter, so maybe there's some kind of business reason to be there. That would be too easy, though, wouldn't it? Um, instead, he makes Caesar Augustus, probably the most great of all the Roman emperors, call an empire-wide census to move Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. Um, we see time and time again, don't we, through the Bible, that God is in complete control of empires and all human power and all human authority. And that God is sovereignly working through history for our good and to fulfill his redemptive purposes. 
And it's worth remembering that when we look at the news. God is in control over all powers. So much so that he, he directs, causes incredible upheaval. <laughs> Imagine what it would have been like for everybody in the Roman Empire to go back to their place of birth. Just so Mary and Joseph could be there to fulfill a prophecy. He does this in order to get Jesus exactly where he wanted him to be. In Bethlehem, but also in poverty. Now, Jesus likely wasn't born in a stable. Um, the picture I showed before is your classic nativity scene. Um, it, it probably wasn't like that. The, the word that's translated as in, in, in Luke 2 verse 7, is um, the Greek katalima, which is not what a commercial in is translated to. It's more like a guest room or a guest house. Um, a typical house in Bethlehem would have had one big family room. Um, and then just downstairs would have been where the animals would have stayed overnight um, because that's where you keep them safe and warm in the winter and from people who might steal or harm them. And in the family room at the top, you'd have your feeding troughs so the animals could, could feed. Some houses might have a guest room, a separate room where visitors would stay. Um, so Jesus was born in the family room because the guest room was occupied. Now, the point still stands whether Jesus was born in stable or not. He wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't born in great wealth and comfort. He was born in obscurity and poverty, in a peasant's home and laid in an animal's feeding trough in a nondescript house in Bethlehem. And then who were the first people to visit Jesus? It's not royal dignitaries. It wasn't even the religious leaders of the day. We, we saw in, in the passage, Matthew's account of Jesus' birth, which Andy looked at last week, that the religious leaders heard about this Messiah being born. They stayed where they were. They didn't come to visit him and worship him. They just let it pass them by. The first people to come to visit Jesus are shepherds. Now, shepherds were poor. They were uneducated. They're near the bottom of the social scale in society. Which all means that the scene of Jesus' birth is nothing like how people might have expected the coming of the Messiah to be. One of the great prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament is in Isaiah 40. And verse 5 says, And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And what is the glory of the Lord? Well, John 1.14 tells us, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. It's Jesus. The glory of the Lord revealed that all the people will see together is a baby lying in a feeding trough surrounded by shepherds. I've witnessed two births. Um, I can tell you now, not that it will be a surprise to hear this, but there's nothing more vulnerable Nothing more unable to survive on its own than a newborn baby. Um, and there's something that sums up that vulnerability um, in very newborn babies, which is the sucking motion that they do with their mouths when they need milk, whether for food or for comfort. And there's an amazing poem <clears throat> by um, a poet called Lucy Shaw called Kenosis, which refers to this. I'm going to read it in a moment because I think it really sums up the vulnerability of this scene and how unexpected it was when you think about who Jesus was. 
Kenosis is just a theological term for how Jesus emptied himself of his own will to uh, be subject to, to God's divine will. I'm going to read the poem. It's also on the screen as well, so to follow along. In sleep, his infant mouth works in and out, which is that kind of suckling motion. He is so new, his silk skin has not yet been roughed by plain and wooden beam, nor, so far, has he had to deal with human doubt. He is in a dream of nipple found, of blue-white milk, of curving skin, and pulsing in his ear the inner throb of a warm heart's repeated sound. His only memories float from fluid space. So new, he has not pounded nails, hung a door, broken bread, felt a rebuff, bent to the lash, wept for the sad heart of the human race. You see, in the incarnation... The God of the universe stepped down from his throne and entered into a young woman's womb to be born in a peasant's home and laid in an animal's feeding trough and would have craved the repeated sound of his mother's heart in his ear and the feel of her skin and her milk, just like any other baby. This is what Paul means when he says in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, That though he, Jesus, was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. There was a great preacher in the time of Elizabeth I uh, called Lancelot Andrews, and he summed up this kenosis, this self-emptying of Jesus, when he said, The Word, capital W, Jesus. The Word, without a word. The Word, Jesus, unable to speak. The word. Isn't that incredible? And this poem, the, the Lucy Shaw poem, ends with this line where it, it turns the entire thing around, where it says, he hasn't yet wept for the sad heart of the human race, which of course we know that's exactly what Jesus ends up doing, isn't it? Um, Malcolm Geit, um, this is from this book, Malcolm Geit's book, um, Advent Poems, he, he When he's writing about this poem, he says this. We realise that the one who weeps most deeply for the world is Christ himself, who comes to us in love. Our healing and redemption will be found in the tears of his compassion. The incarnation is just not what people would have expected, and really not what we expect when we really dig into what happens here. Are you waiting and hoping for God to move powerfully in your life? Perhaps it's been a long time. Might not have been 400 years, but it might feel like it. Maybe right now your levels of faith to see that change are high. Or maybe hope deferred has made your heart sick and you've lost faith and it will ever change. If there's one of the many truths of the incarnation is that if we're hurting this morning, if we're suffering this morning, that it's that Jesus himself weeps over our own sadness and brokenness and suffering. He's entered into it by taking on flesh and he weeps with the broken heart of humanity. This scene of Jesus incarnate as a newborn baby 
shows us that God can and does move in ways that we don't expect. He also moves to accomplish what we don't expect. See, the people of Israel, they were expecting the Messiah to come and restore Israel to a pre-exile state. They've spent hundreds of years being occupied. So for them, their expectation, their hope is that the Messiah would restore the nation of Israel and free them from occupation. But we know that doesn't happen. That's not what happens at all. In fact, 70 years after Jesus is born, roughly, Jerusalem is raised to the ground. And the temple, which is the, the centre of their identity and their religious worship, is destroyed by the Romans. And by this time, the events of the book of Acts have all taken place. That book is written. Uh, Paul is now dead. But by this time, he's preached the gospel to the Gentiles and even reached Rome, the centre of the empire. This isn't probably in the scripts for people who are waiting for the Messiah to come. Overthrowing the Romans was in the scripts, not, not converting them to the faith. And then we consider the life of Jesus. He lived in obscurity until the age of 30. We don't know anything almost about what happened in that time. Then he spends three years healing the sick and proclaiming the, gospel, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then, see, he dies, which we'll come on to in a moment. But in that three-year period, he never has a home. He's rejected and despised by many of those that he came to serve. And as I said, he dies, not just any death, but the death of a criminal hanging from the cross with a spear thrust through his side. I love Philippians 2, um, verses 6 to 8, um, where it talks about this. It says, he, Jesus, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus was born and lived in a lowly position. And it was from this lowly position that Jesus would serve us all the way to the cross. Because at Christmas, of course, we remember the incarnation, we remember the birth of Jesus, but we also remember why it was necessary Verse 11 says, when the angels come to the shepherds, they say, a saviour has been born. The incarnation was necessary because we needed a saviour. And it means that ultimately we can't think about Christmas without Easter. The purpose of the incarnation is ultimately the cross. This is why Jesus needed a body. So that one day it could be broken. Um, I wouldn't normally put a long quote up on the screen, but this one... Couldn't do it any better than John Piper's done it. I'm going to read it out, um, but it sums this up um, just majestically, I think. In order for Jesus to suffer and die, he had to plan it way ahead of time. Because, as a Logos, or word, who existed before creation, he couldn't die. He's immortal. He didn't have anybody. He could not die. And yet... He wanted to die for you. So he planned the whole thing by clothing himself with a body so that he could get hungry and get weary and get sore feet. The incarnation is the preparation of nerve endings for the nails. This is what the incarnation is. 
The incarnation is a preparation of a, bro- of a brow of thorns to press, for thorns to press through. He needed to have a broad back so there was a place for the whip. He needed to have feet so there was a place for spikes. He needed to have a side so there was a place for the sword to go in. He needed cheeks, fleshy cheeks, so that Judas would have a, would have a, a place to kiss and there would be a place for the spit to run down that the soldiers put on him. He needed a brain and a spinal column with no vinegar and no gall so that the exquisiteness of the pain could be truly felt. The incarnation shows us that God accomplishes what we least expect in ways that we do not expect it to do. This is the incredible kenosis paradox of Jesus' birth, life, and ultimately his death. So just in finishing, I think there are three ways that we can respond this morning. Or rather two, actually, two ways. The first is to reject the message. And the other option is to believe and to tell. You can reject the message of Christmas. You can reject this offer of Jesus who, as John Piper said, wanted to die for you. You can reject the God whose sovereignty over time and space and powers and empires also meant that you were here today hearing the good news about his life and death for you. And that's totally up to you. It's, I'm not going to argue with people into believing. And that's what the religious leaders did. They, they rejected the message so much so they ultimately killed Jesus. Or you could believe. There's an open invitation this morning to believe that Jesus is who he said he was, that the, that the words of the Bible are true, that he died for you. And to accept that message, that invitation, that good news, that great joy for all people. Verse 14, when when the heavenly host appears, says that glory to God in the highest and peace, and on earth peace among among those with whom he is pleased. And I remember thinking back to Phil's sermon the other week, remember that the people who please God ultimately want to have faith in him. We can't please God without faith. In him, and it's not just a saving faith, although that's really important, and that's an in, open invitation for that this morning. But it's it's also that active living faith to put the word into practice, which is what tell means to believe and to tell. Not just we also think about acts of mercy and service and love, but ultimately we're here to tell people too. The first thing that the shepherds do when they when they see Jesus is they go back full of excitement. And tell people what they have seen and heard, how they've witnessed what, it, what happened and how it would be just as they were told it would be. These guys, these people are the first ones to encounter Jesus other than Mary and Joseph. They're the first Christian missionaries. They tell. And then we skip ahead to the end of the Gospels. And people who have encountered Jesus through his life are told to go into hell to go and make disciples of all nations, to go and spread through this empire that God has his hands over and to see people come to believe in this story and to be transformed by the love of God. 
We have encountered Jesus. We must go and tell people what we have witnessed.